Well, if I have not met you, my name is Philip. I get the opportunity to be one of the pastors of the church here. Uh, if you want to know more about our church, what we believe, uh, there are a lot of people sitting around you that would be love to talk to you afterwards. Please, as Keenan invited you, please, uh, please know that we'd love to welcome you and get to know you better. Uh, we are, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series in a book of the Bible called John. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. And we have been studying a particular part of that. And we're in John chapter 15 this morning. So if you'd like to take one of those pew Bibles in front of you, the blue books, turn to page 902. Uh, you'll probably be helped to have this in front of you even as we go through it together. We're going to be looking specifically at John 15, 18 through 16, verse 4. Yeah, I wonder if having just prayed for the plight of people who are persecuted just seems to you to be like totally unlike your experience. That, that you can't even recall a time when you were even aware that someone didn't like what you believe, let alone made it known either in word or action. I got to tell you that as I studied this passage this week, that is basically how I felt. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, I, I don't have a ton of personal experience in. I know friends, especially from living in the Middle East for about three years. I know friends from other countries like Iran and Pakistan and China and other places where, where they had to flee for their lives. So I know it's happening. But I personally don't have a ton of experience with it. So I just want you to know that. I want you to know it because I trust God's word still is true. Even if I haven't experienced all the facets of it. And I trust that you may have a different experience. Yours might be like mine. Yours might be entirely different from mine. And yet we come together to God's word this morning. Knowing that Jesus has things for us to hear him say. Learn from him and follow him in. So just a disclaimer that I'm speaking more on the authority of Jesus' words than I am in my own experience. And I hope that brings you comfort to know that we're collectively trying to follow God and not a man who's speaking. So let me set up the stage for us. Get us acquainted again with what we've been talking about and thinking about from John. Jesus has been preparing his disciples, these men who followed him for the better part of three years, preparing them for the day that is soon coming when he's going to leave them. He's going to be crucified. He'll be resurrected. Then he'll ascend back to where he came from, to heaven with the Father. He's been preparing them for this. A life of living with Jesus even when Jesus is gone. A life of living with each other as Jesus' people in God's love. And I hope that if you've been here and going through and listening to Jesus talk about the life we can have with him, I hope that you have had occasions where your heart has really soared. That you have been so encouraged by the life that Jesus has provided for you. Even as we wait for him to return. But in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to tell us another aspect of our life of waiting. And it's the life of opposition. Here's the main idea of this passage as we 
look into it in just a moment. Jesus, in John 15, 18 through 16, 4, prepares us to be witnesses of Jesus to a world that opposes Jesus. Jesus prepares us to be witnesses of Jesus to a world that opposes Jesus. We're going to think about that in three different parts. So this will be kind of my, my outline for this sermon. First, we'll consider how we are opposed. We are opposed. Second, how we are witnesses. And third, we are prepared. We are opposed, we are witnesses, and we are prepared. So let's think first about Jesus and how he tells us that we as his people, those who follow him, those who have trusted in him and and repented of our sins and relied on him for forgiveness and grace and life through the resurrection, we, we come now and we hear Jesus tell us from John 15, starting in verse 18, that we are opposed. I'm going to start reading there in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me. Before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Okay, so when we talk about and think about how we are opposed as Jesus' people, who is it exactly that is opposing us? Well, look at verse 18. It's the world. And then further explained in verse 19, it's those people Jesus has not chosen and saved. So apparently in Jesus' understanding of how the world breaks down, there are those who are his And there are those who are not. There is the kingdom that he rules over and the people that have come into that kingdom by virtue of believing in him, trusting in him as their king. And then there are those who stand in opposition to his kingdom. And as far as we understand Jesus' teaching, there was no other category of people. Jesus' disciples were all Jewish. And every one of them had likely grown up hearing the Old Testament description of the Jews as God's chosen people. They would have been taught to view non-Jewish people as, quote, the world or Gentiles or God's enemies. So what would they have thought when Jesus here redefines those categories? Now it's the disciples are Jesus' chosen people and those who follow their example in faith and repentance as the church. And it's now the Jews that are going to reject Jesus and condemn him to death. Even if they continue holding up the Old Testament in their mind as authoritative. Now it's the Jews included in this world that hates Jesus and his people. Do you see that in verse 25? 
the word that is written in their law. That's a specific reference to the Jewish people. Must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Remember what Jesus said earlier in chapter 15. The world includes anyone who isn't connected to Jesus as the vine for your life. Religious or not, atheist, pantheist, child, adult, American, European, African, Middle Eastern, Asian. They are your family and friends, your neighbors and your coworkers. They're on television. They are the artists who sing to you on Spotify. They are the ones who serve you at restaurants. They might even be sitting on your pew this morning. They might even be you. All around us, as Christians, we should expect to be opposed in this world. But how will we be opposed? Not only is who is it that's opposing us, but how will we be opposed? Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. So we will be hated. Then look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We'll be persecuted. Hatred is the heart posture, and persecution is the physical action taken out of a hateful heart against someone else for their belief in Jesus. Now, not every act of opposition we feel as Christians, not every experience of suffering is what Jesus means by persecution. We need to be clear about that and careful, especially these days. These days, if someone simply disagrees with you, we can be encouraged to quickly claim we're being persecuted. I mean, we could take it to all kinds of ends. We can go so far as to think that if our political party doesn't win the election, we should wring our hands because of this new persecution against the church. Not all our opinions and preferences have to do with Christ's teachings, even as Christians. Not everyone's disagreement or difference with you has to do with their attitude toward Jesus. Still, Jesus warns us here that there will be people who hate the church and seek to oppose it. You might say, Philip, I have lots of friends who do fit that description of the world and they don't hate me, even though they know I'm a Christian. What does Jesus say? The world will hate you because it hated me. I'm not suggesting that we're always going to know the hatred that people hold in their hearts towards you. I do genuinely believe that you do not have to be a Christian to be nice. You can do good things in this world even though you don't like Jesus. Not at all saying that. But Jesus seems to be making a deliberately universal statement. The world hated me, it will hate you. You won't always sense people's hatred in their attitude or speech. You might even know personally that we as human beings are capable of burning with hatred on the inside and keeping it cool on the outside. 
At times, we won't see any evidence of specific persecution against us individually. We might see it more clearly in our culture at large. Maybe you've not experienced this kind of opposition because others that you would say don't hate you simply haven't heard from your mouth what you actually believe. Or maybe they're just afraid to tell you what they really think. I grew up in a part of the country where there was a pretty powerful cultural pressure at the time to not speak your mind against Jesus for fear of cultural ostracism from nominal Christianity. It can happen. Even people who aren't Christians will try to be nice, but Jesus says these outward acts of tolerance mask a deep hatred held in their heart. Hatred held in the heart, though, is impossible to keep contained forever. If a person finds that they are empowered to act on their hatred, church history shows us what the world really thinks about those who believe in Jesus Christ. Countless stories have been recorded of brutality towards Christians. Imprisonment, execution, torture. Even today, entire nations issue standing threats of swift and severe punishment for anyone caught worshiping Jesus. Now, we live in a fairly open country. We thanked God for that reality just a moment ago. There's no reason to feel guilty about that. In his providence, he has ordained that, led this country to be that, caused you to be born into it. We are not somehow lesser Christians because God chose to do that. But as such, we might be surprised to hear that there are those who are taking physical action against the church simply because they are the church. So maybe if that's you, it would help you to get better acquainted with Christians in other parts of the world who live under the threat of persecution. If you know any missionaries that have gone to places that are hostile, I'd encourage you to get their email and ask to be signed up to their letters that go out and Oftentimes in those letters, we'll hear prayers for help us to be faithful in the midst of trial. Help this brother or this sister who's facing total ostracism from their family for believing in Jesus. Help them to persevere. Maybe that, maybe that would help you become more aware of what's going on around that verifies that what Jesus' words are true for his people in all times. The fact that much of the New Testament is written to the persecuted church gives us a pretty good idea of what God knew what would, would be happening to churches in every age. I'd also say that we should be prepared, as we'll think about it in just a moment, we should be prepared as a church to become more acquainted with persecution in this country in the coming years. It should be a category for you. And you should be ready when it comes, and we have time to prepare now. Listening to Jesus, trusting what he says, and asking that he would make us ready to stand for his name when the time comes. The world opposes us, and they do it with hatred and persecution. But why does the world oppose us? Well, the answer is all over this text, but I just want to show you most specifically in verse 21. All these things, these hatreds and persecutions, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, sent me. The answer is there. 
Hatred and persecution against God's people comes because the world doesn't know God. You can go back and look through this text and see the various ways Jesus says that over and over in these verses. And to be clear, Jesus does not view that as some sort of rational outcome. Some justifiable reason that you might arrive to in your own mind and philosophy. That, that that's legitimate. That you, could, that you could hear about Jesus this morning. That you could understand that he came as a baby, born of a virgin, born to live perfectly and die sacrificially and rise victoriously. And you could hear of the testimonies given to us in his word this morning and somehow conclude that God acknowledges and affirms that that's not for me. Jesus says in verse 25, there is no justifiable reason for any person to reject him. In his judgment, Jesus, one day, if you have not turned over your allegiance to him and turned over rule of your life to him, he will tell you that he warned you that your unwillingness to listen to him has cost you your eternal life. He, he will not allow you to get out from underneath the promised judgment, judgment he has said he will deliver against your sin. There will be no excuse. Now for us as Christians, I think the experience of hatred and persecution might be bewildering. It might be confusing for us when it happens, especially if we don't see it coming. All of a sudden, your friends break contact with you because you... You talk to them about Jesus. Families grow cold and distant because they know what you now believe. You stop getting invited to groups you used to hang out with. No, in a strange way, if I can say it this way, it's not really personal. Meaning, that's not just a reaction against you because they don't like you. Jesus says you can identify with him. He says it's because in their hearts you can only either be a friend or an enemy of God. And when you stand with Jesus, the enemies of Jesus will stand against you. Because he suffered it, you in following him will suffer it as well. Those who are opposed to you are that way because they're against God. Hate against the church is evidence of hate towards Jesus. Jesus goes to great lengths to make this explicit. I wonder why. I, I wonder if Jesus, knowing the human heart, anticipated that people will go to great lengths to convince themselves that they don't hate him. <laughs> he must have known that our culture would pride itself on saying, I don't have anything against Jesus. He's just not true for me. Jesus says that anybody who actively or passively refuses to have them as, his, as their master... Hates him. Because they don't know God. According to Jesus, you cannot claim to know God if you are not specifically and exclusively giving your whole life and trust to Jesus Christ. Anything besides that as a reaction to Jesus is what the Bible calls sin. And friend, it's something we're all guilty of. So if you find yourself in that position this morning, please don't feel singled out. We all have a testimony of how we lived our lives against God. Praise God, we also, many of us have a testimony that God didn't leave us there. He showed us grace and mercy 
opened our eyes to understand that there was forgiveness of sin and life in Jesus' name, we would love to help you understand that too. We are praying even right now that God would be doing that work in your heart. The fact that any of us are hearing about Jesus today means that we are responsible for what we'll do with the message about Jesus. Either repent and turn to him or reject him. I love the comfort for our persecuted brothers and sisters, either in this room or across the world that's here in this passage. Look how closely Jesus identifies himself to his persecuted and hated people. And many times he says, this will happen to you because it happened to me. He's drawing a correlation, a close unity between us and him. He means us to be understanding ourselves as one with him and his life and his experience. He wants us to know that he is with us. Such a comfort. It's as if he's telling them, we're one now, you and I, and you're experiencing what I experience. So friends, this is not a physical battle. There is a war going on. The antagonism that you experience from the world because of your faith in Jesus is a byproduct of a world that has taken arms against Jesus and his kingdom. In your stand for faithfulness in this fight, Jesus stands with you. The same world Jesus says hates him is the world, though. Remember at Christmas time that Jesus came to save. Some of the same people, maybe you, who once rejected his word and his work, later became people who heard his word and believed through Jesus' work that he is God's son and our savior. The change that began to occur when Jesus brought the gospel into a lost world is a change that's happening even now. And even though Jesus is gone, his gospel keeps going out. And it goes out through our witness, which is our second point. We are opposed and we are witnesses. We are witnesses. Look at verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I wonder if you found that um, at many different stages of your life, you find yourself wondering what it is God would have you do. You wonder, am I in the career that God has for me? Am I supposed to stay single or would he have me get married? Am I supposed to endure the trial I'm in or am I supposed to try to make changes to alleviate suffering in the trial? How should I spend my time? God, what should I do? Well, Jesus gives us a clear statement of what he has for us to do in this passage while we wait for him to return. He says he wants us to be his witnesses. To be his witnesses. What does that mean? It means, according to this passage, it means telling people who are hostile to God that Jesus Christ is God's son. That he was sent from heaven to end the way, the war between us and God through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. It means telling people that Jesus gave his life in our place on the cross so that the wrath of God we deserve for our sin might fall on him. It means telling people that Jesus rose from the grave to give us life with him. 
to rescue us from death that comes from our rebellion against him. It means telling people and witnessing to the fact that anyone who would be saved must turn from their life of sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's what it means to be witnesses to Jesus. True Christian witness must, at some point, verbally explain that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. Witnessing is Christ's special mission for us and for his church. No other institution on earth did Jesus give this role to. It's ours. Before this, in, in, in John 15, he's been explaining how we're to love Jesus' friends by sharing Jesus' love with them. And this kind of love for Jesus' people we often call discipleship. But now he's adding a second part to that mission here. Love Jesus' enemies by sharing Jesus' news for them. And we call this evangelism. If Jesus has something for us to do, Warnell Road, this is it. This is it. Now, Jesus was well aware of the cultural context that he was sending his disciples out into, into this world as witnesses. He knew the hatred and the persecution that awaited them. He knows how our culture has gotten to be the way it is, how it's shifting rapidly. He knows how throughout the age of the church, many will remain antagonistic toward Jesus and his people. He knew that from his own experience. But he also knows that salvation is found in no other name than his own. If enemies are going to become his friends, if the dead are going to live, then his name must be shared. His gospel must be told, and he has chosen that we will be the ones who tell it. Now, after Jesus' description of the disciples' coming experience in the world, in verse 18 to 25, we just looked at all that opposition, I wonder, don't you, what the disciples are now thinking? <laughs> after that, after that prep, that setup, maybe they were still confused. They're still trying to get their heads around how it is that Jesus is going to be gone from them. So they're still working that out. Maybe they don't have a category for this kind of suffering. Maybe they were still expecting that Jesus is all of a, going to, all of a sudden going to surprise everybody and become the king of Rome. Maybe all this heightened their desire for Jesus to stay with them so they wouldn't be alone and Jesus could protect them. Maybe they were afraid. Was Jesus telling them about all these coming oppositions so that disciples of his could have enough time to get out before it started? No. He's telling them so they won't. In the face of persecution that's coming, even if they meet hatred and opposition for it, the disciples should stay and tell people about Jesus. Jesus leaves his followers here on earth to tell people that Jesus is the one sent from God to be our salvation through death and resurrection. Not to get out of the world and watch the world go to hell. And so we see again God's mercy here in his plan. Look at how God treats his enemies. After they killed Jesus, Jesus decides to send more people to the same mission, to the same people, so that they might hear and believe. Let's appreciate that the opposition Jesus encountered 
that led him to the cross did not shrink his resolve to press on in order to save his enemies. Nor did rising hatred and antagonism limit God's ability to work powerfully through the cross and the grave. How often, when our faith is resisted publicly, do we view it as a sign that we either need to fight or we need to flee? Jesus doesn't do either. He has a different life for us to live that doesn't involve wimping out or picking up weapons. And it's a life given through his spirit, which is another another major part of Jesus' words in this section. We are to be witnesses in the middle of opposition. That we are to do this is clear in verse 15, 26, then articulated over and over again in the book of Acts. But we also see from these verses that Jesus tells us how we are going to be his witnesses, and it's through his spirit. Did you see that? When the helper comes, verse 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. We will need help for this task. Jesus gives help through the Holy Spirit. We are not left to go it alone. The Spirit's presence is going to give us boldness and courage. The fact that Jesus talks first about the Spirit bearing witness in verse 26 before he talks about us witnessing in verse 27 makes it sound to us that maybe it's even the Spirit leading us in this. And look at the priority of the Holy Spirit's work in this world. What what does he want to do? So this Wednesday, we're going to gather to pray. Ken Kenny's going to lead a devotional from Luke chapter 11. Where we're told that the Father loves to give us good gifts. And so we should pray for the Holy Spirit. And he'll give it to those who ask. What is it that we want him to give us the Holy Spirit to do in us? Well, what does he want to do? The Holy Spirit intends to make Jesus known. So if he at times chooses to do miraculous things in this world, it's because the evidence of his power verifies that Jesus was telling the truth about himself. If we never see any healing or miraculous deeds or extraordinary events, but we see lives changed by the power of the gospel to live for Jesus, then we know the Spirit is working among us. When we pray for the Spirit to be with us, we are praying that he would work in us to make Jesus known. That's his ministry. That's his priority, to exalt the name of Jesus in all the world. Evangelism, then, is not... First and foremost, our ministry. It is the Holy Spirit's ministry that we are invited to partner in. It's not that the Spirit needs us to say something before he can work. No, the Spirit instead has something he wants to say through us. So if you've grown tired or afraid of telling people about Jesus... Let the Spirit's leadership awaken you and revitalize you to your witness to the lost. God isn't asking you to speak for him so much as God is desiring to speak through you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16 through 20. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, 
Do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Holy Spirit is involved in this life on mission as witnesses. We are not going solo into the world. He gives the help. He gives the words. He gives his spirit and his word and power comes with it. The spirit working through his word spoken from our mouths can cause Jesus's enemies to turn to be his friends. The spirit is what can turn our hearts from fear to bold witness. The spirit is the difference between Acts 1 when the disciples who heard this teaching are huddled in a room praying. And Acts 2 when the disciples are out boldly proclaiming Jesus and 3,000 people are saved in one day. If you need help, you've even got people around you here who will help you. Didn't we just promise to do that for each other, encourage each other, admonish each other? Part of that is to do the mission God's given us. We can help you. And I would really be helped. This might seem weird. But if you're facing hardship and persecution because of your witness for Jesus, would you please come tell me about it? I need to know for my own sake. Your faithfulness is going to encourage me to be bold when I might otherwise be weak. And my prayers for you are going to encourage you to press on. Let's share those stories with each other. The disciples are going to see after this, in just a few months, a massive movement of the Spirit after hearing Jesus say this. But we know this is not always the reception we're going to get. It will not always go that way. Sending us out as sheep among wolves certainly is how God turns wolves into sheep, but not always. We must also be aware that opposition to our witness will remain in this world, even when some, even we get when we get to see some switch their allegiances to Jesus through our witness. We need to be prepared for this. If we're not prepared, we run the risk of giving up. And so thankfully, and thirdly, Jesus prepares us. We are prepared. We're prepared. Look at chapter 16, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 4. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This isn't in my notes, but just reading that, I just think about like, if you want to think about what God's power is capable to do, Jesus had in mind Saul when he said those words. And he also knew he was going to appear to Saul and Saul would become Paul who would then become very persecuted, but also become a powerful witness of the gospel through whose life many were rescued from death and darkness. That's what God's capable of. Most of the men who heard these words from Jesus were martyred. Jesus was not using hyperbole here. He was prophesying about a certain future. They would see the kingdom of Jesus advance by the power of the Spirit But they wouldn't see Jesus return before their lives were taken from them. 
The story of the apostles in Acts narrates great advances of the church from Jerusalem outward, but there are also harrowing stories of persecution like Stephen's. Brutally stoned for telling people what they didn't want to hear. One of the reasons you can know the Bible is true is because it tells us things that are hard to hear. What philosophy seeking to gain followers would promise its adherents that if they believe this, they will meet hostility and even death. Most current popular ideas about spirituality seem instead to focus on how their beliefs can incorporate all different versions of truth into one that lead ultimately for your everlasting comfort. No one need disagree. We can all go along to get along. Church, we will feel the pressure of that. And we will feel the pressure push against us to remove our Jesus distinctiveness so as to escape mistreatment in our culture. But we must not do that. When you lose Jesus and what makes you distinct because of him and you lose his gospel that calls sinners to be saved from their sin through repentance and belief, then you lose, you lose everything that makes you Christ's church and God's people. When a group of people stop standing firm on the gospel and being clear in its proclamation, despite what it costs them, they should take the name church off the sign outside their building. Despite what people who don't know him claim, Jesus never came here to propagate a go-along-to-get-along religion. Yes, he was the prince of peace, but only for those who bow their knee to him, the king of kings. Listen to Jesus' words later in Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the apostles will go on to write about Jesus as if he's a stone that makes people trip and fall. A stumbling stone. What what they meant by that is that either you understand Jesus' call to die and live, or you will trip over his message, and you will turn away from it and from his path. That's exactly what Jesus doesn't want his disciples to do. He doesn't want them to fall away. The word there, falling away, is one word, and it's the word from which we get our word, scandalized. Scandalized. Jesus says he doesn't want us to have all the joy and excitement of his conversion happen in our life and see him change us by getting us out of our sin, only then to be surprised and offended and shocked and put off that when we wake up and we find we love Jesus and now the world hates us and wants to silence us. This whole passage is for us to be prepared for when the opposition comes. So that we can run and hide? No. So that we can know what's going on when it happens. When we meet hatred and persecution against our witness, Jesus intends for these words to ring in our hearts and our minds. Persecution 
is a normal part of the Christian experience. And Jesus loves us enough to tell us straight. Even when so many so-called Christian leaders would have you believe it's the last thing you'll encounter when you follow Jesus. Discomfort that might lead to dying to yourself. And you need to know that. You need to know it to keep counting the cost of following Jesus. Jesus' words and his own way prepare us for this. When Jesus came to earth as a baby, day one, his first years, what did he face? The king hunting him to kill him. And that was his way all the way through his ministry. I wish, I wish, and this is Philip talking now, so discount it if you want to, but I wish large parts of the church in the United States would stop acting as if Christians deserve a representative block in our government. I do not know where we get that idea. But it isn't from Jesus. If we could disavow ourselves of that notion and loosen our grip grip on that as if the case that we must have that, then we would be able to look elsewhere for our hope. Not in the government, not political victory, but find Jesus who can multiply his spiritual kingdom even when his followers are marginalized, mistreated, executed at the hand of earthly kingdoms. You might say, easy for you to say, Philip, what persecution have you faced for your faith? And I I fear too little, honestly. Especially when our Lord tells me to expect opposition in in my witness. It makes me wonder if my lack of witness is the reason for my lack of felt opposition. Man, the Lord's been so gracious to let us be born in a society that still judicially protects our freedom of worship. We can appreciate and be thankful for his providence in that way. He has not promised it to us. Jesus' words remind us that we must prepare in time of peace for when the peace is broken. There may be some people in this room who lose their job for Jesus. It may one day that you live in. It may be the case that we no longer find it advantageous for us to give money to the church for our tax return. Freedom of worship could one day be taken from out of our nation's constitution. If all the world turned on you, Christian, what would you hold and what would you let go? Would you still even then have hope in Jesus Christ? If you're struggling under the weight felt persecution. Don't you love Psalm 69 that Stephanie read earlier? It just gives voice to it all. That Jesus voiced himself and felt you can find comfort in him, even in his word. Go there. If persecution is going to be our experience and we trust in God's sovereign power working in our lives, then we can know that when persecution comes, Jesus prepared us for it and he prepared it for us. Later in John 17, Jesus will pray to the Father, asking on behalf of his disciples, and he will explicitly say, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. Even knowing this about about what's going to happen. 
even though it would hate them. Instead, he prays for their persecution and our persecution to have a productive and sanctifying purpose in our life, that through it we might be sanctified in the truth, that we might become more like him and more people hear about him through us. So what will we need to do to keep from falling away from Jesus? We'll need to remember Jesus' words and believe them. We'll need each other to rely on to help us. Jesus had already told the disciples he's leaving them for each other. They care for each other through this time. We repeated that promise earlier. We'll need to keep walking in the spirit. We'll need to keep willingly yielding to his lead when he chooses to use our lives as witnesses in the face of opposition. But I'd like to end our time focused on what we already have that will surely keep us from falling away. We have the word of Jesus to explain the spiritual reality that his kingdom will advance. It will not fail. It will not crumble, though it will be resisted. We have the spirit of Jesus to minister Jesus' presence and word to us. And we always have Jesus. For every child of God, every true follower of Jesus, every soul bought with the precious blood of Jesus and sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, I want you to know that you have already been prepared for the day of trial ahead. You are already, through Jesus and his spirit and his word, fully equipped to stand Firm when the world throws everything it has against you in ridicule and ostracism and attack. You have life with God, which cannot be taken away from you, even in death. Jesus had eternal life with the Father and the Spirit. And though he died and went into a grave, not even that could take away his life with God. That's, he, that's what he's bringing to us. That's what he brings us into. That's what he has united us to him with in his death and resurrection. A life with him that doesn't end, even though our life as witnesses in this world will. We will be opposed, but we are prepared. So in the power of Jesus' name, let's go and be his witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we pray through the preaching of your word and the work of your spirit that you would make us what you would have us to be. We pray that you would end the war that some here have against you, that you would turn their hate into love for you, that you would, like you did with Saul, make them your courageous and bold witnesses for the glory of your name. Help us, your people, to remain steadfast under these trials not shrink away when persecution comes and help us to stand up shouldering under the current plight of our brothers and sisters who face such harsher lives because of their faith in you. Lord, give us strength to pray for them and go on praying. Yearn for your coming with them 
desire and talk to you about our desires that you make your name known even in suffering. Lord, even in this, even in the cross, Jesus can be exalted and glorified. We trust even in using our lives through trial and hatred and persecution, that result can happen. So Lord, just help us to persevere in it when you have it for us and use it for these wonderful ends. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.